age of 19 years Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Tuesday, where you're going to hear a powerful testimony of God's grace revealed in human lives. Each Tuesday, you'll hear Pastor Adam interviewing pastors from around the world to share the mighty miracles that God has done in their lives to give you hope for yours. We share the stories of the men behind the messages you hear every other day on this podcast. Keep in mind that the free version only includes a portion of the whole testimony interview. To listen to the full version, use the links in the show notes to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Supercast.tech. Every dollar goes to supporting world evangelism. Enjoy today's Testimony Tuesday. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the VBPH Sermon Podcast. You have found us here on Testimony Tuesday once again, and we are excited because we have uh, somebody new to our show, and that is Evangelist Leonard Williams, all the way from Redlands, California. It's been a little bit of a battle to get him on, so uh, we appreciate him making the time. Pastor Williams, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Yes. Well, uh, your reputation has preceded you. I've heard lots of interesting things about you uh, from some good friends, and you were uh, you were recommended to the podcast by uh, Pastor Deontay Scott up there in Spring Lake, North Carolina. So we want to say thank you to him for yes. inviting you on. More like, more than like, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, why don't you uh, take a moment to introduce yourself to those who don't know you? And uh, you and your wife, and where you're uh, serving the Lord, and what God's been doing in your life lately. My name is Leonard Williams. My wife is Patricia. We are serving God here in the Redlands, California church under Pastor Richard Paxa. We've been here under him probably the last 18 years as an evangelist this time around. And we got, you know, out of, originally out of Yuma, Arizona. That's where we got saved in 1983. And God really has helped us over the years in ministry and where we have been in the two churches we have pioneered and taken over. And my ministry journey as an evangelist for the last 21 years overall. But it's been a wonderful time in, in God and God just really helping us coming from livestock that is unbelievable that's not worth uh or much uh looked upon coming from a, a horrible life actually so uh, but god's over the last 40 years of being saved giving our life to christ uh it's been a real journey throughout our lifetime as a christian you know just Watching the hand of God move in places we have been, things, the challenges put to us and about us and where we were going and the destiny where we're at today. Uh, little did I know where we were going to end up as Christians when we first got saved in 83. I had no intention really of ever 
surrendering to God. Uh, but God is through his circumstances, you know, did not leave me alone and left me uh, pretty much defenseless at some time in my life. Uh, but watched my, you know, my marriage destroyed, I, drugs and uh, immorality, all types of things. But I'm not pleased of, as a, even as a sinner, many things I probably would never tell anyone about. But over the last, let's say, forty years, it's been a wonderful journey, man, in the kingdom of God, just to watch God supernaturally get involved in our lives, a marriage that was destroyed uh, because of sin and gang violence and drugs, just a number of different things, and, you know, re ready for divorce at the age of 25. My wife, I actually met my wife when I was 16 years old in high school. And we just, you know, grew developing their relationship over the years, uh, going to school for several years together and then uh, moved in together with her. I was 17. She was 19 years old. And you know, that was the beginning journey, I guess, of our relationship and that would lead into our marriage. And uh, never knowing, never knowing, coming from, uh, even though we're both Hispanics, uh, but coming from totally different backgrounds, she came from a very close, tight-knit Christian Catholic family. On the other hand, I come from a very wild, violent type of family. We, if I could, that time to be able to share, it's it's almost well. That's kind. Of that's kind of the advantage of a podcast is we do have some time to uh, to go into those things. Um, we, uh, we we do enjoy having that because uh, oftentimes you get to share little snippets of your testimony uh, in sermons, uh, but usually they're limited to five or ten minutes of uh, of a total you know message that you're giving. So uh, why don't you take us back to uh, where you grew up? Did you, did you say you were from Yuma, Arizona? I originally grew up. And I mean, I was born in a little town in the Imperial Valley, California, called Brawley, California. So I was born. I was born there. For probably the first six years, we traveled throughout California. My dad worked for the Southern Pacific Railroad at the time. You know, I think I moved to Yuma. Tell me, it was about. Six or seven years old when we originally moved into Yuma. And okay. That's where we, we, my dad took up root with us and just, you know, bought a home there and that's where we stayed. And so, what was family life like in your house? Uh, overall, I mean, it was a, a decent family. I'm not going to say we were, we were great, say, uh, uh, you know, my dad was, he, he worked hard, growing up, he worked hard, you know, he also was a man that loved to drink, you know, he was, he was a drinker, you know, we had our ups and downs, man, with abuse, you know, being, you know, being with 
anything you could possibly be beat with. I'm talking about anything from a switch to a extension cord to a water hose. You know, and I can't just say that was, you know, growing up on the streets and just being a, a man with no restraints, even though my parents, they tried to restrain us and try to leave us on the, on the ground to be good. Because I can remember being a kid. My dad would always have us going to uh, church like for a catechism class after, a, uh, after just regular school. Uh, he would bring inspiring priests to the house and they would speak to us about the Bible. So I knew about God. I grew up knowing about God, but there was no true leadership or exampleship about who God was or how to serve God or what to deal outside of, you know, there's a God in heaven, man, you, you know, you need to go to church. But I remember ever hearing or seeing my family, my parents going to church unless it was a wedding, uh, a funeral, or a baptism. But outside of that, there was no real direction about church attendance and how important it was. Okay. So, um, but it does sound like there was some uh, Catholic background, maybe uh, maybe tradition of the family kind of thing. Do you know where, where that started? Is that kind of a family tradition, you think? Yes, that's, that is a, most definitely a family tradition. Most of my family were all Catholics and I'm going to use the phrase by name only. You know, they talk about being a Catholic. Again, there was no church, real church attendance. And to lead us to that. Uh, so we did end up having to go to catechism and Sunday school. But, you know, when I became an age to be able to you dropped me off on Sunday school. Well, the moment you turn the corner, I'm going the other direction. You know, so that's just the way it was. And uh, how many how many kids, brothers and sisters, do you have? There was twelve of us all together, and I'm the fifth to the oldest. I'm the uh, I'm a third. I'm the third to the oldest boy. We, there was eight boys and. Uh, four girls, including myself. So, you know, we were a very large family. Uh, yes, that is a large family. <laughs> was there, a, was there a, a fight to find food in the house? No, not the fight to find food. Uh, you know, there was always some t something to eat. We may not want to uh, eat what was there, but there was always something to eat. Uh, it's just a matter of eating what was there. And if that was appealing to you, then you would eat it. If not, you know, well, uh, then you're left out. My mother always cooked. Uh, there was always a hot meal. There was always, you know, fresh tortillas in the house. You know, so that was not the problem. Wow. So, yeah, that that's a, a foreign concept to a lot of families today is uh, the difference between you know, growing up in a house where there's two or three or maybe four kids, but uh, 12, 12 brothers and sisters, that is quite a lot. Yes. Do you do you have any um, 
do you have any lessons or lifelong, you know, things that you've took taken away from having such a big family environment like that? <laughs> you know, the hey, way I look at it, hey, if you like a big family, that's fine with you. Uh, not me. I have, I got two kids. I got one boy and one girl. That was, that was it for me. That was it. I, and everybody saying, man, I bet you want a large family coming for me. No, I really don't. I don't want uh, a large family. I've had my share with large families. My wife comes from a family of six, you know, but Matt, we get, we have two. So, uh, so you said that when they dropped you off at the church, you, uh, you ran the other direction. So uh, did you, uh, did you find yourself getting in trouble in your teen years? Uh, not at first. Uh, when I went the other direction, you know, actually I was going down the street to a, community pool and in the back of the pool there were some shuffleboard there and a bunch of you know elderly gentlemen back there playing shuffleboard so i would go watch them play shuffleboard back there and that's where i would spend probably an hour watching them play shuffleboard until it was time for me to you know them for them to pick us up at that's uh at catechism, man, and then I'd go back to wait, wait for my parents to pick me up. But I so so um and, and what what about your what about in school? Did you uh what was your do you remember anything that uh, that uh, anything remarkable from going to school well, there in uh, in Yuma, Arizona? Well, I, you know, I was. Uh, I I played a lot of sports in school, you know, lots of sports. I played basketball, baseball, softball, football, anything I could, because I really didn't want to turn, I may say, out a lot like my father, you know, because like I said, he was gone working. He always worked. There's no no doubt about it. He, he was a working man. So his drinking when he would come home late on Friday night, mid Saturday afternoon, just for the weekends and then had to return back to work. And I just didn't, you know, I could say, well, I didn't want to be like that, but in reality, that's exactly what I did. Even though being in sports, got involved in quite a bit of trouble as a teenager. But I tried to stay out of it, but you couldn't do it. Was that was that because you got caught up in the wrong crowd as you got older? Well, probably part of it, probably part of it. But the other part was uh, I had two older brothers, and so we pretty much ran together. And so my older brother started running, and you know, back then it was uh, you know nowadays everybody's a gang. There's this is the gang. There's a gang. You know. Uh, we didn't consider ourselves a gang. It was just people we went to school with, you know, uh, but we didn't consider ourselves a gang. And so you figure in the uh, late 60s, um, late 60s, you know, uh, probably really the gang life began to flourish there in Arizona. 
and I can remember, uh, I think we, I remember exactly the year, but uh, Newsweek had an article with pictures of certain individuals and how they dressed, and they entire them, this is the attire of a gang, well, this so so happened. That was part of my the neighborhood and the friends that I ran with and hung out with. So we were probably one of the very first individuals out of Yuma at the time to be considered a gang by the public, if I may say that, you know. Wow. Okay, so uh, tell us a little bit more about kind of the environment that you were in. What was what was Yuma, Arizona like in the late 60s, early 70s? Yuma was really, a, it's an agriculture place, lots of agriculture. That was, you know, that was the main, if you want to say the main source of income for many. And the agriculture there, there's also, we have the Marine Corps Air Base that is there, which probably is the largest airship in the world at the time for the military. Then we have another, the Yuma Proving Grounds, that's the Yuma Proving Grounds, the Army Base. And out there, they uh, employed quite a few workers, both military, Marine Corps and the Army employed quite a few civilians. And, uh, you know, they, they were both test sites. YPG, that was a test site for tanks and all these vehicles they were used in the desert for you know for the military and they would they would explode bombs out there shelters out there that they were doing target bombs and you know different around different machine guns and you know 50 cows and all these things and all these tanks and so that was pretty just the community migrant workers, a lot of the individuals there, especially I can remember being a, a youth, a teenager working in the fields. I had picked uh, anywhere from cantaloupes to oranges, um, you know, broccoli, California, uh, cala, uh, ca cauliflower, uh, watermelons, cantaloupes, uh, you name it. Uh, for the for the uh, summer summer work, that's what we would do. I work I worked for the military, the Yuma Proving Grounds, for several years on a uh, for the summertime for a Yuma uh, 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 a program just for you know for school school kids. So they would do, hire us for a couple a summer here, summer there, depending on our our, our ability to work. So you know, but yeah, that's that's Yuma. And did you do you remember having uh, as you were getting into your teens and and thinking about adulthood? Do you remember having any dreams or aspirations for your future life? No, I didn't. I uh, you know, be honest, man. That was that was those furthest things. It's like life. That and back then, coming from the Hispanic background, many we didn't comprehend or we weren't always looking towards the future. Where will we end up? 
20 years down the road? What would be 30 years? Any real aspirations to better yourself? And I didn't. None of my brothers did. None of my family did. And I, lots of my friends were the same way. They, uh, they all ended up getting caught up in some type of drug or some type of a mischief, uh, criminal activity or whatever. And many of them gone to prison. Uh, some of them are dead today. Uh, in reality, and truthfully, I have no idea where a lot of my old friends are at at this very moment. Mm. So, so, I mean, uh, other than, uh, other than the, uh, maybe the, the lack of a dream or a goal for your life, you, you sound pretty much like a typical kid, you know, growing up at the time, but, uh, you, you said that some of the attire or the, the style that you were wearing was maybe thought of in the wrong way. So, uh, what, what, what did that lead to next? I just, you know, just the lifestyle continued to, uh, you know, would go to school, still be a part of school, still going to school, getting an education. But on the weekends, it would lead us to a party life, uh, you know, uh, drinking, uh, smoking weed, uh, uh, doing whatever we got, got, got in a whole lot of fights and stuff with other neighborhoods. Uh, and it's just, that was the way it was. So did you, did you find yourself uh, getting violent quite a bit or, or like, what did that, what did that mean? Well, getting violent, no. I mean, we, you know, it's just typical because you're from this part of the neighborhood, they're from that neighborhood. It's just a, a rival neighborhood. So I can't say violent. It wasn't like all we could think about is being angry and hateful at people man it was just hey this is what we did for recreation and we weren't playing sports you know it's just kind of defending your territory yeah, kind of thing defending something that didn't belong to you anyways you know which is stupid now but hey it is what it is well i mean w when you're in that environment it's probably like one of the most important things that you can do oh, definitely <laughs> definitely so um so did you end up graduating from high school? No, I quit at the beginning of my junior year, missing a credit for the fact is I did not want to stand up before the class and read or do, do an essay or a speech or something. I said later for this, you know, I was, uh, I would tell people, not even to this day, I said, you know, uh, I wasn't the brightest crayon in the box. I couldn't read well. I wasn't as smart. Uh, you know, that's just the way it was. And it's not because I'm, I was an ignorant young man. It's because I did not apply myself. And I did just enough to get the grade to pass. And that was it. So missing that one credit, uh, they they didn't let you pass, huh? Well, no, it's just because I at that time I just quit. I quit going. I said I'm done. I'm not going to stand up here and read and get laughed at, get laughed at and stuff, man. So, so I quit going. So w was there some was there some fear of embarrassment? Yeah, underneath that, oh, definitely. There was a whole lot of fear of embarrassment. 
you know, uh, people love to laugh at people. You weren't, you know, you couldn't read well. You weren't, you know, uh, you couldn't speak well enough. It's like, <laughs> look at the dummy, you know, and that's not even the case. Well, how ironic is it that uh, you you being fearful of uh, speaking in front of a crowd and now your profession for 30 years has been preaching to churches? Well, that's the sense of humor that God has. And I said, you know, I'm not going to do this. I quit. But to sum up some of this back, uh, at the age of 19 years old, shot in the face by a shotgun blast because of gang violence. Uh, just completely blind for about six months uh, today. Well, you you got to explain what led up to that. How did this happen? It was just having to do with just with the with the lifestyle of the streets. Um, you know, a couple of things. I had a '62 Impala that stole it. They burned it. And I knew at that, you know, somewhere, so I'm going out for revenge. I knew who pretty much did it. I found out. And so that was the full motivation behind it to get me to go out and pursue these individuals. That's where it was. But a lot of it had to do because of two different neighborhoods again. So, you know. So a rival gang stole your car and you went out to to go after right. it. Right, exactly. And so somebody pulls out a shotgun and shoots you. Well, the thing was, it was a, uh, it's July uh, 15th, 1977. It's a late Saturday night. We run across these people from that neighborhood. And heading down the, one of the main streets in Yuma at the time, which was called Fourth Avenue, still is to this day. And it's about midnight, somewhere around there, and gunshots are ringing out through the city. Very little traffic, man. You can just hear the shotguns blast going off. It's like it was an old uh, uh, cops and Robert Bonnie and Clyde type of setting, man. We're chasing these people. We're just blasting at them. And so, uh, you know, they were able to escape us, uh, blocked us off. And so when they blocked us off, the car making a right-hand turn just let out the side window uh, with the shotgun blast. And unfortunately or fortunately, I'm the one that got hit. Wow. Well, that is uh, that's no small things. So th- you said you were 19 when this happened, right? Yeah, I was right? 19 years old. Well, that is, that is a pretty life-shaking um, experience. So what what was the immediate impact? I mean, you survived, but uh, what 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 was the what was the impact to your physical health from this? You know, like I said, I was legally, I mean, I was completely blind for several months. Doctors didn't have no idea the extent. I didn't know the extent of the injury. Um, the police reports were saying my head should have been taken off on my shoulders. They're telling me, young man, you know, you should be dead. And even being a sinner, I knew that there was a God, but I didn't know him. I said, luck has nothing to do with this God. 
And to this day, um, you know, after several surgeries on my eyes, they uh, couldn't restore it. And I can remember my wife or the time of my girlfriend being pregnant. I remember saying, God, all I want to do is be able to see if my child is a boy or a girl. And lo and behold, that's what God gave me, you know, but to this day, I'm legally blind. My left eye is, there's no vision in my left eye. If you were to meet me in person, uh, you couldn't tell I was legally blind because I get around very well. Uh, you know, I, I said I'm legally blind today. I wear, you know, contact lens just to be able to read certain things. And, you know, when I read now, when I read my Bible, I'm, write a sermon, I got to use this just to be able to read some things and, you know, at 19, most people would think, man, did you get saved? Did you run to God? No, I didn't. I didn't get saved till six years later at 25. Well, it, it wasn't for the fact that God wasn't reaching out to you. It sounded like you had at least, maybe from a Catholic upbringing, uh, a sense of God's protection, even in that situation, but uh, but still was not enough to, to bring you to him. Does that sound no, right? Definitely, no, uh, most definitely. That was not enough. Uh, like I said, I, I knew about God for what I was taught. Um, but I never didn't, you know, uh, and if I may, and I can say you may, uh, it, is, it was the grace of God, because I can remember as a young child, maybe seven, eight, nine years old, there used to be a bus going through the neighborhood and uh, picking up kids that wanted to go to church. And I don't remember if it was an Assemblies of God church or a Baptist church, but I can remember my mom saying, you guys need to go on that bus and go to church. And I, I went several times, but one time in particular, they pulled an altar call and they called people to the front to receive Christ. And I went down and I gave my life to Christ at that time. But, you know, being a kid, you have no real concept of that. And, uh, you know, years later, after uh, my life, my, my, you know, my gang life, man, my home life, and on and on, probably in 2000 and three to uh, 2002, uh, I'm heading back to Yuma for Yuma Harvest's hometown. And my wife and myself, we're at a light, she's driving, and at this light on 4th Avenue and 3rd Street, 
I looked across and this church is still there and God spoke to me and he said, this is where you first met me. This this was the place that had picked you up in the yeah. bus. Mm-hmm. Wow. What so what kind of impact did that have on you when you when you realized that? I mean, to this day, it it has still has tremendous impact on my life. Knowing that you know, and like I said, because that church, I could pass that church, and I did for many many years while I was a teenager growing up in Yuma, even to a young adult, uh, even to my twenties. Um, I've seen that church and there was really no profound effect on me. It's just, it was just a staple there. But uh, on this time, I mean, the impact was so profound. Is I'm, I felt like God transferred me from my vehicle into that little church again. I could see the platform. I could see the altar. I could see the church slanted going down to the altar. Uh, and it was there, then, the way God really spoke and said, this is your encounter here. It's like when God tells Jacob in Genesis 35, return to Bethel and dwell there, the place he first met God. That's how profound it was to me. And today it's still that profound. Wow. So that's really interesting because it wasn't, I mean, by your own uh, testimony, it's not like you had a deep revelation of God in that time. And it wasn't like you started living for God at that time, but you passed by there and God reminded you of that place saying this is where you first met me. So it seems like God had put you on a path toward him, even though you didn't know about it. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. And that's, it's so true. You know, I, I had no idea um, where God had the plan he had for me. What I can remember my mom just saying, you guys need, you need to go to church. You need to go to that church. And then she met some friends. We knew some people that had gotten saved at the door in Yuma at the time. And, uh, you know, they would go to my mom's house. I was already out of the house. As I left home at 17. They would go to my mom's house. A couple of my brothers had gone to church, and they would go pick her up, pick my brothers up. And my mom would say, listen, you need to go to that church, the door. You need to go to the door. And I said, Mom, that church can't help me. It's not that church can't do anything for me. What do you mean I need to go to the door? But the crazy thing, my mother never went to the door. But because she knew and heard some things, it's like you need to go to the door. She knew people were being changed yeah. there, and she knew that you needed a change to a degree. But that's not what she said. She couldn't say, "Well, you need to go because you can be changed." into a different person. And so about, you know, but uh, yes, always, and the, and the crazy thing about it is I, I never heard my mother tell any of my other siblings, you need to go to the door. It was always me. You need to go to the door. <laughs> was, was that because you were worse off than the rest? I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming in her eyes, but the way, <laughs> but the way I viewed it, 
wait a minute, I haven't been to prison. I haven't gotten lost. These children of me, they've been in and out of prison, in and out of jail. I ain't gone that far yet. And yet, I'm not worse than they are. Wow. So, so recovering from this uh, shotgun blast injury, and uh, and you said you had a baby on the way. Your 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 girlfriend at least did. So, um, w- when did you end up getting married? I got shot in July of '77. Uh, I've gone to Phoenix for some surgeries. Then the the Phoenix uh, hospital couldn't help me. Then they said, "Hey, you need to go to." either San Francisco or to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, there were two doctors, in, one and two in the world, on eye surgeries at the time. Just so it happened, the doctor that was in San Francisco was out uh, doing some seminars in the other countries. So I ended up going to Memphis, Tennessee. And it was there, uh, as I'm sitting there in Memphis, Tennessee, in uh, uh, it's called, uh, I think it was Doctor's Hospital, uh, totally blind. I, I remember telling my girlfriend at the time, I said, hey, listen, when we get home, you can go wherever you want to go, do what you want to do. I'll never be the man that you expect me to be. So, uh, you know, you go on your own way. And uh, her response were... You were expecting her to leave you. Well, yeah, of course. You know, because I was never, you know, I was never going to be the man to go out and be able really to get a, a good job to support her, to support, you know, our son at the time. You know, and so I said, you can go your own way, do what you want to do. And, uh, Again, uh, orchestrated probably only by God. She said, I'm not going nowhere. I'm not going to go uh, end up having a child and be an unwed mother. That's not going to happen. So uh, this was in August. I returned back from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I think I want to say August 22nd, 23rd, 24th. We ended up going to the Justice of the Peace, August 26th, so just a few days back, we ended up getting married. Could you see her on your wedding day? Yeah, I, you know, I it was all a, uh, just the blur. It was just a blur. There was no big, uh, you know, uh, my vision, as I said, was still gone. I didn't have, it was just a blur. Uh, I remember we ended up going to the courthouse, got the marriage license, but we ended up getting married in my mother-in-law, in my mother's living room. Wow. So, so I mean, I, I don't think, um, you know, a couple of 19-year-olds could really fathom what they're getting into. Um, she's marrying you with this life-changing injury. So she's going to have to be your eyes, and you're going to have to lean on her quite a bit, aren't you? Yeah, uh, and that hasn't changed. I still lean on her quite a bit. So that's a different dynamic than than a lot of marriages. Um, but uh, what maybe you can explain, you know, what that means to you and how, how it has progressed through the years. You know, like I said, we got married at nineteen. 
obviously from 19 to 25 because again because of me my lifestyle unwilling to change unwilling to give up the drug scene the party scene the, the violence uh, my marriage suffered but um so you know we were heading for divorce court uh there was no doubt but i met some friends of mine that lived in the same uh neighborhood where we lived and they were from uh, corpus christi texas he was stationed there in the military so as our marriage was beginning to deteriorate very rapidly very bad within six years there was no marriage we become roommates and uh so i ended up going uh, to Corpus Christi to spend uh, some time there to get away. But even in, while I was there, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to be divorced. She's going to divorce me. There's no doubt in my mind. No doubt. I knew we were going to be divorced. Uh, in the process of that, uh, we knew some said we had known some friends that had gotten saved. Uh, so well, I, I want to explore that just a little bit before we talk before we get to your salvation story. But you know, so six years is is kind of a long time to continually be stubborn and not want to change. Um, was, was there some? I mean, how do you, how do you explain that? What what do you looking back on it now, like what was going on in your mind that, that you were willing to let this person go who's willing to stay with you even uh, even through, you know, tragic circumstances? Well, that's the thing. You have to, if, first of all, you got to understand it, it was all uh, because of one's selfishness. And at 19, uh, even when she told me she was pregnant, I said, and what does that have to do with me? I wasn't in any mood and to be a dad or even a husband at the time. I said, what do you want me to do? You know, that's the way it was. And so that's, you know, that's where it ended, man. But, uh, you know, in the process of time, they said, we, you know, we still we were able to somehow, and even before my salvation, there was an intervention of God. In it. Well, I'd love to hear about that. How did God intervene? This is the thing. So here it is. Um, I said, I'm, I'm in Texas. Well, in the process of that, a co-worker, one of her best, one of our best friends in the world, her brother ends up getting locked up for DWI. He gets saved in jail. Our best friend, she gets saved, and we knew some some of her coworkers were already saved that I knew from the streets, and uh, she went to um, a service, and uh, sometime later, she, you know, I, you know, she calls me and says, "Guess what?" I said, "What?" She says, "I went to the door and I got saved." I said, "You did what?" <laughs> and I came unglued. If I could have reached through the phone, I probably would have choked her to death. That's what I, and 
Oh, oh, explain that. Why, why did that? Why did that enrage you so bad? I had no, you know, it's not like the church ever did anything to me. I didn't, you know, I knew some people from the church. I had heard some stories from, but it's not like the church ever did anything for me. I guess because of me and who I was, it's just the violence, the anger that I had. Yeah, that almost almost sounds demonic. Yeah, probably pretty much. I would probably think so, uh, to a degree. Yeah, but it was. It was, it was, it was a rough deal. So, you know. All right. So how, how did, uh, how did God soften that, uh, that hard heart of yours? Uh, it's not that, I don't think that God softened what happened was so this, she got, this would have been in March, the first time she went. She gave her life to Christ, I believe it was March 5th. March, I mean, April 9th. What was the uh, year? 1983. March March 5th, 1983. She gave her life to Christ. March, April 9th, 1983. Well, actually, April 8th, 1983. I returned from that. Texas to Phoenix. She picked me up in Phoenix. We drove to Yuma on the 9th, Saturday. And we're at home one evening. Well, on the 9th, we're at home. We're just talking. And at the time, my sister, she's coming out unglued at my wife because, you know, well, how could you you take this loser back, man? He's done nothing for you. He's no good and on and on. And she sounds sweet. Yeah. yeah, That's a whole other story. in itself. (laughs) But so that night, it's starting to get dusk, man. And so we're there just talking. And my wife said, Hey, listen, Let's go for it. I don't know what happened. I said, listen, I'm not going to that church. I'm telling you, I'm not going to that church. And I don't know what made me say that. Uh, I just did. And she said, no, 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 we're just going to go for a ride, you know. It's like, there's nothing new in Yuma I haven't seen. There's not a street that is different that I haven't been down probably a thousand times in my life. So we did. And so, you know, we wrote, and then uh, she, and, and, and you have to understand the scene. I'm unable really to be clear of my surroundings. Uh, everything is just shadow, uh, uh, an image that's not being very, very clear uh, because of my vision. And so we pull into the church parking lot, and there it became World War Three. <laughs> so you you told her I'm not going to church, and then she drove you right there. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking you wouldn't yeah, notice. Thinking no notice, and so we got in a major uh, fight in the parking lot. No fist fight, no. I, you know, I, I, mean, I never hit my wife, and I back then I never did even to this day. 
but we just got in an argument, man. And she says, "Okay, you you think you cook? You think you're slick? Okay." So what she did, she gets out and goes to goes into the church and leaves me in the car. I can't go nowhere. That, that's peer pressure. I can't go nowhere. I can't see nothing. I can't see the walk home, even though I might have lived maybe a half a mile from the church, maybe a mile, but I couldn't see to go walk myself home. So I sat in the car, and then somebody came knocking on the door, on, on the window. <laughs> okay. Uh, Some friendly church yeah. person. You know, as he's talking to me, I knew who he was because he, he picked up my, I met him a couple of times when he picked up my brothers at my mom's house when I was there visiting. And um, he said, why don't you come on in, man? You know, there's nothing, you know, just check it out. It's just music. I'm like, nah, I'm okay. And amazing, it's amazing how we can, and all about pride and our ego, our whole world is falling apart and we can still say, nah, I'm okay. I don't need, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. good. I'm yeah. good. Yeah. And that was my mentality. So, but, you know, finally he convinced me. I'm sitting there. You know, back then we did the concert scenes. There's no, there's no chairs. It's just all carpet. You just laying, sitting, doing whatever you want to do. And uh, I remember sitting there and I, I'm just, I'm just laid back, man. I'm just taking it all in and I'm, I'm looking at everybody. I'm looking around. I can hear noise, chatter. I can hear uh, I can, you know, the lights from the, uh, from the music and the, the guys that are playing and, uh, this skinny white guy, man, stood up at the end and he just started talking about some, some snake, this snake, that, that, and I don't know, he could have been calling me a snake for all I know. And so all of a sudden, man, this a little bit more light came on and, uh, Next thing I knew, I'm surrounded by about three, four guys. Now, these aren't, uh, I knew these guys from the streets before salvation. One of them was actually a very good friend of mine from the same neighborhood that he got saved. And they knew me. And one of them just made this statement, said, hey, Leonard, listen, man, uh, you, tried, you tried everything in the world. Once you give God a choice. And it was like, probably the best words he could ever say, because he said, if you don't, you know, if you don't like it, man, you can go back to the streets. I said, oh, that's a bargain I can take, man. Because I wasn't, you know, people say they're tired of their sin, they're tired of their life. I wasn't. I wasn't. And as I'm there, and we talk about the spiritual God. And as I'm there listening, I hear a voice. This voice says, listen, you don't need that. This is for these people. These people are weak, man. You're fine. You don't need this God stuff. It, it's a crutch, man. I, you know, you don't, you're better than that. And so then there's another voice that comes that I learned later on to be the voice of God. And it said, if you're going to survive life, this is what you better do. And I battled for a moment. Then clarity came and I said, 
in my head it said, if you're going back, well, I probably said, but I'm going to get back into my house with my wife. This is what I better do. Not willing to surrender still. Still. Only because I was looking for something rather than what, you know, what, 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 what saying a prayer was going to mean. And that was salvation. Wow. So, man, that, that, that's a, a lot going on behind the scenes that, uh, that nobody could see, but, uh, was a battle happening in your soul, yeah. huh? And so, you know, so I go down. They say, just say this prayer with me. We just repeat these words. I repeated those words. And there was no lightning. There was no voice in the heaven. There was nothing, man. I wish it would have been, you know, uh, 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 Apostle Paul's, you know, <laughs> conversion on the road to Damascus, man. That's all bright light, but nothing. So the next morning, Sunday morning, I step outside of my back my backyard, and for whatever reason, I looked up into heaven, and life became so clear. I could hear the birds chirping. I could, you know, it's like if God removed the scales, man. Like for one moment, God gave me clarity of vision. And it just seemed so bright. Everything, man, sound like I was hearing for the first time in life. My neighbor's outside. He said, hey, Leonard, you want to get loaded? I got some new stuff, man. Why don't you come on over? And I said, I just looked over at, at him and I said, nah, I'm going to go to church. He said, well, after you come back from church, come on over. We'll get high. You know, and so that was, that was, like I said, that night, there was nothing. The next morning, man, light became clear. Wow. So, yeah, that that's really, um, that's really compelling. I heard a very similar story from Pastor uh, T.J. Horta. Mm -hmm. Do you know him? Yeah. So he, when he gave his testimony on our podcast, he said something very similar. He said that when he got saved, like, like you said, like he didn't feel anything, no trumpet sounding from heaven, no rushing mighty wind or anything, but it was like when he stepped outside, like the sky was bluer and the trees were greener. And, and it sounds like you had kind of a similar situation that God, uh, God just gave you a sense of his presence in the, in the normal mundane place of life. Yeah. Does that sound exactly. accurate? And, and, and not only that, it's like almost like I have no desire to get no desire to drink, to do anything. And I'm one, of, I'm one of these guys before I went to sleep, I was getting, when I woke up, I was getting, that was my start to my day and the end of my day. But that didn't even cross my mind when my neighbor invited me. I said, no, I'm going to church. And that was it. Well, I, I wonder if you would if you would agree with this statement. Like when when God opened your eyes the way that you described, 
Like he made he made life in salvation more interesting to you than the the life of getting high uh, in sin. And so it was like compared to the experience you were having of the Holy Spirit opening your heart, like getting high seemed like not interesting compared to that. Getting high at that moment didn't even cross my mind. There was no thought about getting high. Uh, It was in that moment. And I, like I said, this is all after the fact that I was completely delivered from drugs and alcohol and, and tobacco, man, and a foul mouth. And I mean, just immediately without even realizing that what took place. Mm, that's a miracle. You love to hear it, man. So, and you, you said you were 26 when you, when you prayed for salvation and started going to church. 25 in 1983. Man. So uh, it is now 2023. It's been 40 years since that occurred. And uh, we want to hear all about what happened after you got saved. I'm sure your life changed in, in a thousand different ways. Uh, we want to hear about how you were called into the ministry. We want to hear about the uh, ministry stations that you have served into, but uh, we're going to save that for the second half of the conversation. And uh, if you want to hear that, you got to be a premium subscriber. So uh, if you are not already a premium subscriber, you can uh, click one of those links down below and become one in a very short amount of time. But for now, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with part two. 